Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2,271 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. We are continuing our messages I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This is the 19th of a 25-week message series covering the book of Hebrews. This message is titled, Faithful Walks Worth Following. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. As we continue our extended series through the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, last week we studied the application of faith by uncommon people with, with, by common people with uncommon faith. And this week we're going to extend those thoughts as we observe faithful walks that are worth following. And our focus today is on the patriarchs of the nation of Israel. Those are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And our passage today is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 22, and it's on page 1875 of your pew Bible. So follow along. As I mentioned last week, this entire chapter is called Faith in Action, starting with verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were the heirs with him of that same promise. For he was looking forward to a city whose foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And with, by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful, who had made the promise. And so it is for the one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sands on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of a country that they had left, they would have an opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who embraced the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and in some the matter of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed the sons of Joseph and worshipped as he worshipped and leaned on top of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, when the end was near, spoke of an exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instruction considering the burial of his bones. I remember reading a story, I think it happened back in the 1970s, might, might have happened since then also, but there were two preachers in this backwood mountain community, and they died a self-inflicted test of faith. It was based on Mark chapter 16, verse 18, and it seemed that they were determined to prove the strength of their faith to their congregation by handling venomous snakes and drinking poison. Now, if I recall correctly, they survived the snake bites for a tough period of time, both copperheads and rattlesnakes in the past, but this time they increased the stakes by drinking strychnine, which is a poison that's found in rat poisoning. Needless to say, 
These men failed their test of faith. Within a few hours of drinking that poison, both of them were dead. Besides basing the beliefs and practices on a flawed interpretation of a biblical text that probably wasn't even in the original Gospel of Mark, these men crossed the line between faith and presumption. Now, on the surface, it might appear daring or courageous or even impressive to their congregation, but God was not pleased with their voluntary snake handling and self-inflicted poisoning. He never commended those actions nor did he ever promise a miraculous healing for those who put the te to him, him to test like this. Now, clearly, sensationalism and superstitious displays don't please God. But what does it take to please him? What does he say? Well, last week in Hebrews chapter, six, verse, or 11, chapter 11, verse 6, he answers that all-important question when he said, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now, pleasing God does take faith. But it's not blind, wishful thinking that presumes that he'll do what we want, when we want it, and how we want it. Faith is a humble obedience in response to God's word. Whether it's a statement of historical fact, a promise of provision for protection, or prophecy of the future, or a command to be obeyed. Faith is simple trust, and it's always manifested in faithfulness. I have some drawings here today. I did not make these drawings. I can't even make a stick figure look presentable. But last week in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1 through 7, chapter 11, verses 1 through 7, the author had already begun to paint his montage. And he showed people of faith as he painted Abel, who offered God his best with a sincere heart. He painted Enoch, a picture of Enoch for us, who walked with God and lived a life pleasing to God. And then he painted that portrait of Noah, who heeded God's word and followed him and obeyed his instructions. This was the beginning of the procession of faith. Now, the author had already painted these initial background screens, scenes in last week's passage. In the next phase of his glorious production, the author moves to the another part of the canvas where he paints two of the most well-known biblical figures, and that is Abraham and Sarah. And that is what our primary lesson is going to be focused on today. These stories, along with their descendants, the patriarchs of the nation of Israel, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, each of these in their own way, exhibited a kind of faith that pleased God. They weren't perfect like we're not perfect, but they walked faithfully along a path that was worth following. So as we look, start looking at verses 8 through 12, unlike those two foolish preachers who fatally handled snakes and drank poisoning, the faith of Abraham and the faith of Sarah was neither sensational nor superstitious. However, from a world's perspective, undoubtedly they were considered what the decision they made to, to step out might have been considered risky or even ridiculous. Note that Abraham's faith began in verse 8, when he was called to go. His faith wasn't founded on some sort of subjective feeling about God's will. It wasn't some sort of formation in the cloud with an arrow pointing in a particular direction. It wasn't a vague message from a fortune teller looking into a crystal ball. 
The Bible says in Genesis 12, verse 4, so Abraham departed as the Lord had instructed. And it goes on to verse 7 of Genesis 12 says, the Lord appeared to Abram. Now it is thought by most Bible scholars, and I would tend to agree with this, that the, a manifestation of a pre-incarnate Christ appeared to Abraham in fleshly form and said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go to a land that I will show you. I'm not going to tell you all the details, but I want you to go and follow me. And that's where true faith rests. It's a clear revelation from God. As we're told in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, so faith comes from hearing, and that is hearing the good news about Jesus Christ. That good news is the Gospels of the Bible. That good news is how we have faith. And that faith can only be gained if we spend time in God's Word. By reading and studying God's Word, we gain the faith. We're strengthened to have the faith that we need when we need it. It builds our faith. God's calling Abram with audible, objective, and specific, although he didn't tell him all the details. He responded with faithful obedience, that is, Abraham responded with faithful obedience. In verse 8, the depths of his faith was revealed, and he says he obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. God didn't give him all the details, and so it is with our lives. We may not know every detail of what we're going into, but we can know the one who does. Can you imagine, though, all of a sudden, Abraham and Sarah start packing up all their stuff, the comfort of the security of their homeland. Abraham said to his dad, hey, I want you to go with us, and Lot, a nephew, I want you to come with us. Packed up all of his people that worked with him, all of his livestock, which was great amount of livestock. And they were, had that security at home in the land of Ur. It was their homeland. And now they were going to somewhere God knows where. Their faith walk was even more remarkable when he remembered that Abraham and Sarah weren't a newlywed couple with an adventurous spirit. They weren't some sort of spring chickens, as we used to say growing up on the farm. That for them, Abraham at this point was 75 and Sarah was 65. And at that point in our lives, we're saying, well, it's time to wind down a little bit. But no, they got up and they went. They had over a half a century's worth of possessions. And as the older you get, as we've had to clear out our parents' homes in the past few years, the more you accumulate. And for them to take over a half centuries of goods that they have accumulated and pack up and leave. I can begin to imagine how they explained it all to their family and friends and their neighbors. Yep, we don't know where we're going, but we're heading out. That's sort of like Bruce and Lisa this week. <laughs> Not sure where we're going, but we're heading out. Now, Paula and I spent 10 years, as most of you know, in North Carolina for work. And although we maintained our home here, we would travel back and forth every month for a few days. And it was not particularly easy for us, especially with Paula's mom with us most of that time. And then when we would come up, we'd usually try to visit my dad on the weekends that we were up here. But it was not so with Abraham and Sarah. In verse 9, it says, it took faith to live as a stranger 
in a foreign country. We always felt like we were still coming back home in Marietta, but not so with Abraham. They were a stranger in a foreign country called the Promised Land, or the land that was promised to them. He lived in tents, like an unwanted foreigner who could move from place to place. And in this always-on-the-move environment with insecurities in the presence and uncertainties about his future, Abraham and Sarah raised this child, Isaac. And Isaac did that with his family. They were still vagabonds, so to speak. In the midst of all this, Abraham walked by faith, not by sight. He depended on God and yearned for a permanent heavenly city that was designed and built by God. In verse 10, it tells us. His focus wasn't on the hardships, and he had plenty of those through this journey of life. It was on the reward of that eternal destination that he was looking forward to. And so should it be with our journey in this life. Yeah, we'll face some hardships, nothing like Abraham and Sarah had to go through. I mean, we go t camping every once in a while, most of us, in tents. Now, Paul and I prefer the tents are called Hampton Inn and the other tents like that. But for Abraham, it was a difficult life. They dwelled in tents, as we do, if you think about the analogy here. In this life, we dwell in mortal bodies. That the older we get, the more they tend to break down. But at one day, these mortal bodies, when Christ returns a second time, will become immortal bodies, and we will be in dwelling that will last forever, permanent dwellings. We're here to, on this earth to build God's kingdom in preparation for our forever home. When Christ returns and we are given our immortal bodies, the body that Christ had after his resurrection, he will remake the earth from the way it is today, release it from the curse, and it'll become a global Eden and where heaven and earth will combine and we will live forever in that forever home for it, with us and with Christ. But you might think, what about Sarah through all of this? I can imagine that poor wife dragged around by this wild-eyed faith walk, ir irritated by her husband's spontaneity, frustrated by his stubbornness and fed up with his dream chasing. That's how most of us, I think, would respond, but no, not Sarah. The Apostle Peter commended Sarah as an example of a woman of faith because of her submissive spirit and faithful support of God's call on Abraham's life. And that's found in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 6. The author of Hebrews also points out that her faith, her faith walk was worthy to be followed. It says, by faith, Sarah considered God faithful, the God who had promised that one day she would have a child of her own. At 65, she knew when that call was given to her that she probably wasn't going to have any kids. But then all of a sudden, this pre-incarnate Christ appeared to them and said, I'm giving you a land that you will not, don't know about, and you will have a son. And Sarah probably anticipated that joyfulness of being able to have a son even in her old age. But she hadn't conceived a son or born a son, even though this was part of that package promise given to Abraham and believed that when they left their homeland in obedience to God's word, she would soon have a son. But it was not that easy going. 
because for 25 years after their initial call, they waited and waited and waited. They tried to take things into their own hand, which wasn't God's plan. There was no empirical evidence that she would or even could at this point have a child of her own. In fact, toward the end of this 25 year of wandering in the wilderness, when God announced to Sarah that she would be pregnant within a year, she laughed at the idea that she would become a mom. Wouldn't you? Sure enough, though, Abraham at 100 and Sarah at 90, she had a son. Can you imagine being 90 and having a little baby? No. I think that's why we have children when we're young, so we can handle those, the children. Not that, you know, ours were perfect, but, you know, some kids aren't. <laughs> as long as I'm their dad, they certainly weren't perfect. Sure enough, Abraham and Sarah was given that promised son. In Hebrews 11, verse 11, it says, And by faith Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear her children because she considered him faithful, who had made the promise. So initially, she laughed at this notion of having a child of her own at that age. She came to embrace with simple faith and the clear words of God to Abraham. In verse 12, as we move on to verses 13 through 16, at this point, the writer of Hebrews sets aside his palette of paints he's been using for his canvas up to this point, and he steps back and looks at it. He says, yeah, I've painted these faithful people for you. But in verse 13, he says, all these people still living by faith died. But wait, what do you mean they were still living by faith when they died? Didn't Abraham make it to the promised land? Didn't Sarah have that promised child, Isaac? Yes. But what they experienced was in life was merely a foretaste, a shadow of things yet to come. Abraham didn't receive that full promise, just a down payment. Abraham and Sarah only had one child. But the promise is, is I appreciate John's scripture this morning, reading the more encompassing um, version of part of the story. But the promise was in verse 12, descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Have you ever laid on your back and stared up into the stars and tried to count them? I have at times in my life. It's impossible. You've ever, ever been on the sand on the seashore and you tried to count the sands on the seashore? It'd be impossible to do. The land in which they sojourned was indeed the promised land. But he and Sarah and Isaac and all their household lived as foreigners and strangers on this earth, in verse 13. Nevertheless, all these examples, including figures that we're going to add to our montage today, died in faith. And the world has constantly tested our faith and their faith. They all passed with flying colors, living by faith right up to their last breath. And that's what God calls us to do. He calls us to live by faith until he, we take that last breath in this life and then pass on to be with him in paradise. The author of Hebrews highlights the vital aspect of our faith walk. They were seeking the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises beyond the horizon of this world. 
Abraham called himself in Genesis 23, verse 4. He says, I'm a stranger and a foreigner among you, even in the land of promise. This indicated he regarded, regarded himself as being on a journey through life to the land that was indeed his, something he looked forward to beyond that land promised by God. Nor did he consider the Ur of the Chaldeans a country of his own. He never crossed his mind to return to that country or to bury his dead there. Therefore, the author of Hebrews concludes that the people who lived and died in faith, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly country, in verse 16. And this takes us back to verse 1 of chapter 11. It is the confidence in what we hope for, the assurance of what we do not see. And that is our faith walk. It is gained by approved by God when we walk with him in faith. This faith is reserved our place in the heavenly city in verse 16. As we move on to 17 through 19, snatching the brush up once again. And he applied a thick coat of paint, so thick that it stood out almost like a 3D image, a relief on that paint image. And he goes into providing us with 12 words that will rock the world of the Hebrews readers and our world. It jolted them to their attention. In verse 17, it says, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. I do appreciate John going into the details of the stories this morning in his reading. To Jews, the passage recounting Abraham's binding and offering of Isaac in, verse 20, in Genesis 22 was a central place in their religious heritage. To this day, the passage has a unique Hebrew name in Judaism, and it's called Akada. It comes from a root of Akkad. It means the binding of Isaac, and it was one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture, illustrating Abraham's faith has matured and his obedience was full. But after all this time, Abraham and Sarah had been promised throughout these 37 years from their original calling. God tested Abraham's faith, instructing him to do the most challenging thing that he ever asked to do. In one act of trust and obedience, Abraham surrendered to God's fulfillment of his promise. It was the center of his dream. It was his one and only son. And so we read in Genesis 22, verses 1 and 2. Abraham's immediate obedience was perhaps more shocking than God's incomprehensible command to sacrifice Isaac. But we don't read of any arguing either in Genesis or in Hebrews. No hesitation, no bargaining with God, no reminding God about how long they had waited for their son. Instead, Abraham got up early that morning in Genesis 22:3. He saddled his donkey and he headed out to obey. At this point, Abraham was 112 years old. He didn't hesitate. He just went. But sometimes, just one little letter in a word can make all the difference. In Genesis 22.5, it says, Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told his servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there, and we will come right back. Abraham used the plural form of a Hebrew verb, nahashba, 
we will come right back, rather than the singular form of that verb, ahasha, I will come right back. This one letter changing it from an A to an N-A showed that Abraham had complete trust in God's promise to make Isaac's offering into a mighty nation. This faith freed Abraham to obey the command that he didn't fully understand. How could Abraham reconcile the command to offer Isaac as a burnt offering, a sacrifice, with the confidence that he and Isaac would come back off the mountain like he told his servants? The author of Hebrews gives us the answer to this. In verse 19, he says, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Let's be honest. To an outsider, Abraham's actions would have looked like a deranged deeds of a maniac, not the faithful obedience of a man of God. And indeed, even today, wicked people commit vile acts, falsely claiming direction from God. So what's the difference between those people and our patriarch of faith? If you'll look in your bulletin insert today on the side, it says, faithful walks worth following. Abraham's steadfast trust and unhesitating obedience rested on four pillars, which was his foundation of solid theology. The first pillar was Abraham knew God is completely good and never commits evil or commands evil. The second pillar was Abraham knew that God is completely wise and must have a plan, even though he didn't understand it. The fourth pillar of faith was Abraham knew that God is completely just and would not treat Isaac unfairly. And then the fourth pillar is Abraham knew God is completely powerful and would keep his promise. And with the graphic on this side of our bulletin insert, the simple words, by faith, Abraham, dot, dot, dot. That's all it took, is his faith. So even amid this apparent contradiction, Abraham could trust and obey. He knew there was no other way. Not because he knew exactly what was happening. How could he sacrifice his one and only son? But because he knew the one who did know what was happening. And when Abraham demonstrated faith through this radical test, God provided a ram for Abraham to offer in place of Isaac. The author of Hebrews notes that this event is a type or a parallel, literally a parallel, or a parable, in verse 19. But what is it a parable of? And the commentator I read this week said, Isaac was received back from the verge of death, a sign God's unfailing provision in a moment of man's most desperate need. So what this is a parable of is Jesus Christ. The parable of Jesus Christ and what he did for us. We are God's promised children, as Isaac was God, Abraham's promised son. We are his image bearers, and Jesus Christ is our substitute, that sacrificial lamb. Just as Isaac or Abraham took Isaac off the altar that he had bound him and released him, and then he took the sacrificial lamb and placed him on the altar. So we are taken down off the cross, which we deserve, and Jesus Christ is placed on that cross as our sacrificial lamb. As the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptizer, proclaimed in John chapter 1, verse 29, he says, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As we move on to our last couple verses here, with a few more brush strokes on our painting today, the author of Hebrews completes 
the scenario of the patriarchs. Abraham's faith walk was that of tracing it back through his children and his grandchildren as a reminder of this patriarchal period that was launched with God's promises that was made to Abraham. We saw in verses 18 and 19 that Abraham and Sarah preserved their faith walk through a rough terrain, overwhelming obstacles and extreme challenges as we will have sometimes in our lives. Now we see that same faith passed on to their son Isaac, who in turn passed it on to the next generation in verse 20. Isaac no doubt recalled the story sitting at Abraham's knee with Abraham and Sarah telling him the stories he told by his father and Abraham, Isaac inherited Abraham's longing, for he was looking forward to a city whose foundations and whose architect and builder is God. The story instilled in him a yearning to regard for the future of what they were looking forward to. In verse 1, once again, confidence of what we hope for, the assurance of what we do not see. And Isaac just passed it on to Jacob and Esau, his sons, by faith. And then the next generation of torchbearers took up this faith also and passed it on. Jacob passed it on to Isaac, grandson of Abraham. He lived out a life of faith, receiving from God a new name, and that is Israel. The 12 sons of Isaac, of Israel, the father of the 12 tribes of, the, of Israel. And then we fast forward through Jacob's life. And the 12 sons at the end of Jacob's life, the author of Hebrews focuses on the legacy passed on to Jacob's grandchildren, Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph. In verse 21, the fact that the blessing of Jacob extended far into the future to his grandchildren demonstrated the extent of the faith of that promise-keeping power of God. And finally, in verse 22, he recounts the blessing that Joseph gave just before his death, he too looked ahead prophetically. He looked 400 years into the future when the children of Israel would exit Egypt, requesting that his remains be returned to the promised land so that he could be buried with his ancestors. How did he know that they would leave that land? It was that promise that God had given them. Through the ages, the patriarchal period closes with the people in the land of Egypt, far from the original land promised to Father Abraham, far from that faith promise, that promised land. How did Joseph know of God's promise to the nation of Israel? Simple. Joseph was told by his father, Jacob, who had been told by his father, Isaac, who had been told by his father, Abraham. So these snapshots of faith growing from the root of Abraham promised the strength in the author's point in verse 13, let's go back to that. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. And as such, our lives, as their lives are imperfect, still represents a faith walk worth following. So what's the application today? Found on your other side of your bulletin insert. The application of Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 22, is following the footsteps of the faithful. Are we following the footsteps of those who have gone before us? But another question is, are we leaving footsteps that are worth following by the generations that come after us? 
The author's central theme of Abraham's lifelong faith, the root of several generations of faith walks that are worth following. They weren't perfect. If you dig into the stories of all these people, we don't see a life of perfection, but we see a life of faithfulness to God, a life worth following. We can follow those footsteps by meditating on the meanings of Abraham and Sarah's walk and their faith. And this is the type of faith that has been impressed on me and my desire for several years. And the primary reason I started my podcast, Wisdom Trek, I wanted to create a living legacy. I wanted something that my children, my grandchildren, and generations to come could look back and see a life of faith worth following. Teaching here at Putnam is part of that living legacy. So let's return to the author's explanatory aside in verses 13 through 16 and focus on three principles that we can find in these verses. They're listed in your bulletin insert. The first principle is their faith was characterized by a lofty vision, an ability to hope beyond the restrictions of the present. They knew something was greater. They looked forward to that heavenly city whose architect and builder was God. Abraham and Sarah both found hope beyond the limited confines of this world as they looked to God's promises, waiting for them on the horizon of eternity. So enthralling was this lofty vision that nothing on earth could recapture their hearts. They were unwilling to return to the land of Ur, and they could do more on this life than to pitch their tents even in the promised land. They were foreigners and strangers everywhere they went because they knew their real home was with God in, in that eternal city. So the question is, how is it, what is our vision? Are we nearsighted, focused on the things that are only in front of us here on earth? Do the material and temporal things trump the spiritual and eternal things in our lives? If our eyes are truly fixed on heaven, is our heart set on eternity? Is everything in this world will pale in comparison? As I had mentioned before in a message or two, we need to look at our possessions here on earth as just caretakers of those. Yes, Paul and I have been blessed to live in an ancestral home. We've been blessed to have ancestors that have walked a life worthy of following. We can trace our ancestors back to the founding of Marietta, even the founding of our country, and even farther. But is my focus on that, or is my focus on eternity? What we have in this world, we're strictly caretakers because once we die, we no longer possess it. We are the caretakers of it while we're here on earth so that God can receive the honor and glory. The second principle is their faith was marked with passionate pursuit, a deep down determination to embrace the eternal over the temporal in verses 15 and 16. Abraham and Sarah were seeking a real homeland, unwilling to invest their time and energy on those things that were just passing away. This meant cultivating a relationship with God and finding his true, their true identity only in him. What kind of pursuits do we embark on? What is the tra trajectory of our lives, our plans, our ambitions, our investments, and our goals? And all these things are good. All these things we are responsible before God to take care of while we're here. But our, is our worth tied up in those? Or is it tied up in something that's more eternal? Are you passionately pursuing an intimate relationship with our Savior and spending our time and energy on those eternal things that will outlast this world? 
Those eternal things are the impact that we have on our children, our grandchildren, our nieces, our nephews, those that we impact on a regular basis. And the third principle is their faith demonstrated a selfish abandon, a willingness to release all the earthly things to follow God's will. In verse 15, now Abraham and Sarah had to say goodbye to the land of their youth at age 75 and 65. Abraham took his father, his nephew Lot, the people that worked with him, all their livestock. They left their family, their friends, their landmarks, their comfortable culture. They completely leaving the past behind and exhibiting an attitude of abandon. As we step out in our faith walk, are we timidly feeling around, not wanting to cause much in the way, way of waves? Are we testing the ground in front of us? Are we keeping hold of that which is safe and secure on this world, the surroundings of our past? Or are we mentally and emotionally leaving those behind, letting go of them, bracing ourselves to pioneer forward as the Lord leads? Are we ready to take these three principles to heart and to follow the footsteps of the faithful? Are we investing in the lives of others that will have an eternal impact? The only impact we will have in our eternity is that which we leave with others. Whether it's our children, our grandchildren, generations to come, nieces, nephews, friends, associates, neighbors, what impact are we having on them? Could we change, would that change how we conduct our lives? How we conduct ourselves around those people? But the rewards of a promise will infinitely outweigh anything that we could gather here on earth? Are we willing to step out in the step of faith? Verse 16 says, longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God was not ashamed to be called their God, for he had prepared a city for them. Stepping out is not always easy. It's not easy in investing in the lives of other people. It takes time, energy, things that we would rather do on our own pursuits might be taken from us. But as we take those baby steps, they turn into mature strides. Then we can leave a life worth following, a faith walk that generations to come will look back and say their life was worth following. A life that is built on an eternal city whose architect and builder is God. That's the kind of faith walk that we need to pursue today, one that's worth following. Next week, we'll continue our study in the faithful walks worth following, and we'll explore the triumphs and the tragedies of the faithful, because not all the people that were commended for their faith lived a life that was pristine by any stretch of the imagination. So please read Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 40 in preparation for next week's message. Let us look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for Abraham and Sarah and their walk of faith. We thank you for those who have gone before us and the generations that we can look to here on earth all the way back to Abraham and Sarah. May our lives, Father, be worth following from those that come after us. May they look at our lives and see that we are worth following, Father. And that can only happen by our faith in you. Pray for this faith that would be strengthened, be encouraged to walk in a manner that's pleasing with you, and that is by faith. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.
I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.